Well, let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 28, as we are going to uh, have the final uh, message this morning in our study of the book of Acts. Some of you will know uh, this term, and some of you will not, but uh, some of you will know the term binge-watching. Now, you don't have to confess, that's all right. But if you have ever binged watched anything on uh, Netflix or Amazon or whatever, whatever the ones they are, you know when you get something you really like, a series that you really like, might have eight episodes, might have eight seasons, whatever, and you just, man, you just, you know, you just, you just love it. You just, and that's the binge watching is you just go from one to the other. And uh, if you're sitting there with Cheetos after four days and you haven't done the laundry and the cat's not fed, well, maybe we do need to have a little chat. But if you have done that and there's a particular show that you really like, you know that feeling when you're watching the last episode. (laughs) Now, see, you're laughing because you know. Uh, I will not... You don't need to know my shows, and I don't need to know your shows. But there has been some that I intentionally waited because I didn't want to watch those last two because I knew my life, I'm exaggerating, obviously my life isn't that shallow, but I knew that once I watched, maybe it is, I don't know, but (laughs) thanks, but once I, I knew there would be no more, and um well, that's kind of a little of the feeling I have in, with the book of Acts, that we come to chapter 28, and, it, and, it's, and it's over. Well, it's not really over. That's, that's the cool thing about it, because if you remember when we began the book of Acts in chapter 1, the book of Acts begins in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, where uh, Luke, who is the recorder, the historian, he's a companion of Paul, and he writes in verse 1 of chapter 1, he says he ri- he's writing this person, we don't really know who he is, a man by the name of Theophilus. He's writing an account, of course, we know he wrote what is attributed as the gospel according to Luke in the book of Acts, as kind of a second volume. And he writes about those things that Jesus began to do and to teach. So the fact that Jesus began and the work, the advancement of the great commission of the gospel going forth, we uh, have been witnessing those early stages. And we come to chapter 28, and chapter 28 uh, ends somewhat kind of abruptly. I mean, we have the Apostle Paul that we've been tracking uh, primarily since chapter 13, and we've been kind of watching his travel logs and the the connections he's made for the gospel and people that he's witnessed to and jail and persecution and hardship and all those things, that uh, we come to chapter 28 and we find that he's in Rome awaiting trial, but Luke just kind of ends it there. We don't see anything about his trial. We know little pieces from church history that uh, have have given us some information that uh, historians have Piece together about what happened uh, after uh, chapter 28. But we come to chapter 28, and we find that Paul is continuing to do what he's been doing, and that is, is sharing the gospel. So the title of the message this morning is simply called The End of the Beginning. The End of the Beginning. And we have just uh, and hopefully been encouraged at witnessing through the growth of the church in the book of Acts, seeing how the gospel has fulfilled or and is fulfilling what Jesus told his disciples in chapter 1, verse 8. He said, you know, wait in Jerusalem. You will receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will give you what? Power. Power to do what you can't do by yourself. Power to take this gospel to Jerusalem, their home, home area, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, ends of the earth is just everything that is beyond where they lived. Uh, Jerusalem, their hometown, Judea, almost a little further out, Samaria, Jews and Samaritans, you know, they really didn't hang out together. 
but the gospel has gone beyond that to the ends of the earth. And, and Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that's, that's really kind of a cool outline for the entire book of Acts because from Acts chapter 1 to about verse 7, we see the, the focus being up on the gospel in Jerusalem. From chapter 8 to 12, the focus is kind of Judea, Samaria, and then when you come to chapter 13 to the end, it's to the ends of the earth. So chapter 1 verse 8 gives us a little outline of how the book of Acts, or at least suggests that, of how the book of Acts unfolds and is structured. We uh, started with a few stops and starts for holidays and things, but we started the book of Acts on April 15th, 2018. So we've been uh, in it for a while, and if you uh, desire to do so. Uh, most every sermon message is online on our website, and you can go back and listen to those uh, messages. But we leave where Acts finished, and that is Jesus, where he gave the command to advance the gospel. And in chapter 28, verse 16, I think it should be on the screen, this is where we see the Apostle Paul, and he is continuing to do that. Now, remember, we've watched him in a shipwreck. He's got bitten by a snake in chapter 27. Now he's in Rome because he's appealed his case. He's a Roman citizen, and he was under arrest by uh, those back in Jerusalem who said that he was blaspheming the law and he was desecrating the temple and all these false accusations. But because Paul was a Roman citizen, he had the legal right to appeal, kind of like we would say, I'm taking it all the way to the Supreme Court. You know, that, This was kind of the, the, the deal. But part of it was, was God had given Paul a promise, uh, spoken to him a, a few times, one time uh, in, in jail, and told him that not only would he take and advance the gospel in Jerusalem, that you would go to Jerusalem and you're going to find trouble there, but the Holy Spirit told Paul, don't, don't be fearful because you will take the gospel to Rome. Now, why is Rome a big deal? Rome is the epicenter of the world during this time period. It is, for all practical purposes, the world capital. And so once it made it into Rome, it began to advance into Europe and, and uh, in other parts of the world that uh, uh, Paul for a time was in what is today called Spain. And so we see that the gospel going to the ends of the earth is actually happening and taking place. And so here we find Paul, verse 16, that here he is, he's uh, under, actually he, he's kind of in a house arrest type of situation. And it says that when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. He's in Rome, and one of uh, Caesar's guards is guarding him. Uh, sometime look in Philippians, and he makes a couple of references and says, essentially, he says, isn't this great? He said, who would have thought I would have been able to take the gospel into Caesar's quote-unquote household? I've got his guards guarding me day and night. Now, do you think that Paul engaged in a conversation with these guards about the gospel, and they had to listen to what he had to say. And so he is uh, seeing this as part of the plan of God. Uh, same chapter down in verse 30 and 31, he lived there, it says, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. He just, you know, his home is open, and what is he doing? Verse 31, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Sherry, will you come up here and check that air? I see people starting to wrap themselves up in parkas, and I feel like that air behind me, you don't need, you don't, well, you need your glasses, obviously, because you won't be able to see. I was going to say, there's no key to it. Is that okay? Some of you that are starting to turn blue out there. Now, I know some of us feel great, all right, but being the servant of Christ I am, I will... I will bear my cross. No, I want you to be comfortable. And so at the end of Acts 28, Paul is in Rome, and he spent two years, two years in Rome. This is, this is just important to keep in mind. And it's during these two years that he wrote letters. Sometimes we don't correlate and parallel what's going on in Paul's timeline and then letters, you know, we kind of think that the New Testament or the Bible is put together kind of, you know, chronologically, and it's not. And so while he's in Rome these two years, he writes the wonderful letter of Philippians. He's in Rome when he writes that. He writes Ephesians. He writes Colossians. He writes that little 
postcard called Philemon. He meets Onesimus and that whole thing of that runaway slave. And so Paul, uh, he, he's there. He's making good use of his time. But, uh, and some suggest that during the, after he was released in two years, that's when he perhaps continued to travel, made it as far as way to Spain. But somewhere after that, things turn dark, and he's back in Rome. And this time, he's not under... Uh, in his own house, and he's not doing a lot of ministry. He's under arrest again, and the situation's turned really bleak and dark now, and now he is facing his death. In fact, if you look at 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is the last letter that is attributed to Paul before, at least that we have, uh, that is attributed to Paul before he died. And we see a little glimpse of what's going on there in chapter 4, familiar verses, but now you kind of know the context of where he's at. He says in verse 6, he says, "'For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come.'" He's talking about his death. And of course, you know verse 7, "'I have fought, what? The good fight, and I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith.'" In that same chapter, that's where he tells Timothy to bring his coat, "'Winter is coming.'" He says, bring my books, you know, even though he's in prison, a much darker place, he, he still wants to be uh, learning and growing in God's Word. Uh, he talks about those who have deserted him, who have left him. Remember a guy named Demas that was part of his ministry? He says he's left, and he's by him. It's a pretty tragic situation of this man who has done so much for the advancement of the gospel. And so this morning... As we think about the end of Acts, at least in our, the study of the book of Acts, and reflect on just the entire sweep of these 28 chapters, I was trying to think, well, how, how, can, we, how can we wrap it up? How can we kind of bring it to some conclusion? And I begin to think about the different uh, principles that we see taught throughout the book of Acts and begin to just kind of write these down and uh, and I narrowed them down to just seven. And I had a lot more, but I figured you want to have lunch at some point. And we uh, are, are just going to look at seven. And these aren't in any particular order. And there are certainly more that you probably would come up with. But they're just seven that I think are really key as we look at the sweep of Acts. Some things that as we as a local church, we on the downline of what God is, is done and is doing, these are timeless truths, these are timeless principles that are still modeled throughout the book of Acts that we need to make sure that they're modeled in our church, in Grace Church. And before we do that, will you join with me in prayer as we ask God's to, God to bless us and bless His Word, rather. We just thank you, Heavenly Father, for this word that we have, so many brothers and sisters around the globe do not have the privilege of the written word on a page uh, to have like we have. And we have probably multiple copies. I pray that today that you would help in our, in our looking at the word. We thank you that it's truth, it's life, it's food to us, it teaches us, it is your voice to us. Uh, we don't uh, need to worry about hearing voices of God. We have the voice of God in this book. And you speak to us every time we open the book, every time we read from its page, we have the voice of the Creator through tr Jesus in the Holy Spirit teaching us and leading us into all truth. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at these seven observations, seven principles. Uh, number one, the book of Acts shows a church that is continuing to be built by Jesus. That's the first observation that I would note for you, that the church, uh, in the book of Acts, it shows a church that is continuing to be built by Jesus. You remember Acts, or rather Matthew 16, 18, Jesus following that wonderful confession of the Apostle Peter where he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, not Peter, he wasn't the rock, but the confession that he made, that was what was the rock. He says, on that confession of me is Christ, the Messiah, the sent one, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is what Jesus is, is 
is up to. He's building his church, and he's not building a building. He's not building a denomination, right? He's not, you know, just building some mega center. The church, literally the Greek is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia in the Greek means called out ones. His church are those that he has called out. It is his people. So he's building his church. He's building his body. And as we see in the book of Acts, just a few, just a few sample verses, right? At the beginning in chapter 2, verse 47, on that day of Pentecost, it says, and the Lord added to their number day by day. He is in the addition business, and we see from the get-go in the book of Acts that the Lord is adding to the church. He's building the church. You jump over to 514, and and the Bible says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. God is growing the church. Now, in Acts 2, it talked about 3,000 that were added to the church that day. In Eastern fashion, Jewish fashion, more than likely they were counting men. Sorry, ladies, but that's just the way they did it. So if you added some wives and maybe some older uh, kids in the mix, there could have been five, six, seven thousand people added into the church that day. When we get to chapter five, some estimate that the church in Jerusalem has grown to almost ten thousand people. That's why one of the accusations that the hostile uh, religious leaders that were opposing uh, the disciples could say, they have filled Jerusalem with this message. They couldn't stop it. It was like a tsunami. They couldn't stop it, and they were helpless to try to thwart the advancement of the message. Uh, Acts 11.24 says that, takes me about Barnabas, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, And it says, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So there's this addition, there is this growth that God is doing, and and the Lord is continuing to grow His church. Just as a uh, sidebar example, I I came across this article. It was dated a few weeks back, so it's current, and it was very fascinating. And it says, the fastest-growing church in the world... You're not going to believe this. I didn't believe it. I looked it up a few places and seems legitimate. The fastest growing church in the world is spreading like wildfire. Wildfire. Wild, isn't that where we order stuff? No, that's Wayfair. All right. The <laughs> fastest growing church. <laughs> Sorry, just delete that. Guess where it is? In Iran. Iran. Listen to this. And you can, look, you can uh, look this up. There's a documentary. You may want to make note of this. I'll, I'll put it on our Facebook, the link, and you can look it up. But there's a documentary that they put on YouTube about this unusual revival that is taking place in Iran. It's called Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. It's a documentary by a group called Frontier Alliance. And the uh, article, the uh, article talks, it says, large numbers of Iranian Muslims are walking away from Islam and toward Christianity, a new documentary says. Uh, Frontier Alliance produced this documentary, and it says, Inside Iran, a country where the majority of citizens are Muslim, the fastest-growing church in the world is blossoming underground. One unidentified Iranian church leader even went as far to say that Islam is dead in Iran. Well, uh, Maybe not quite yet, but that's a big statement. The church leader who remained anonymous for their protection asked, what if I told you Islam is dead, telling the the producer of this documentary? What if I told you that the mosques are empty inside Iran? What if I told you that no one really follows Islam in Iran? Would you believe me? He said, that is exactly what is happening inside of Iran. God is moving powerfully inside of this country. He said, the, now listen to this, the Ayatollahs brought the true face of Islam to light, and the people discovered it was a lie. After 40 years under Islamic law, a utopia that was supposed to happen, they've had the worst devastation in their 5,000-year history. According to Fox News, the church is without buildings, property, or central leadership, but still it is steadily growing. The movement's aim, I like this, the movement's aim is not to plant churches but to grow 
disciples. Disciples build churches, okay? Uh, it says the seismic shift that happens in the church of Iran is when all these church planters found out that converts, listen to this, that converts run away from persecution, but disciples would die for the Lord in persecution, interestingly. He says, and concluded, he said the underground movement, which is pro-Israel, now listen to this, and is largely led by women. Now see, all the ladies got excited there. You just woke up. They call this the Iranian awakening. awakening. I found that very fascinating, that God is building his church. God is building his church. Notice, secondly, that the book of Acts shows a church that is marked by what I, I just call cultural diversity. I was trying to figure out a way to, to explain it. Uh, remember, that in the book of Acts, Jesus directed his disciples' attention to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come upon them and give them power, and it would enable them to advance the gospel. And as the gospel is advanced, his kingdom rule would advance. And that wouldn't just be something that was happening in Israel, but that was something that was, the point was to the ends of the earth. It was to worldwide. It was, it was everyone, okay? Uh, and that they would receive this power, Acts 1.8, to be witnesses starting out in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And there's a couple of aspects that we see in the book of Acts uh, where, this is, where this is highlighted, this, this church that isn't just limited among a, 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 a small little ethnic church in Jerusalem, but kind of breaks down barriers beyond that. We see an ethnic diversity. Now, keep in mind... This is not social engineering going on here. This is the work of the Spirit that is going on here. This isn't some man-made thing. This is the work of the Spirit that is taking place. I mean, right at the beginning, in Acts chapter 2, what do you have here? I think I'm trying to remember if I had these, this scripture on the screen in Acts chapter 2. It says that on the day of Pentecost, it says that they were... Uh, uh, that in Jerusalem, in this, in this one of the, the big feasts, that there were people gathered from every nation under heaven. Now, do you think God had some, you think that's just coincidence that the Spirit was poured out and it, on, the, on the festival of Pentecost? Because there was people, it was one of those festivals where, where they, they came from every nation to come to Jerusalem. And then it goes on to say that in the next verse, I skipped a few verses, that when they heard uh, through this gift of languages and they heard this sound uh, and people speaking in their own native tongue, it says, and at this sound, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they began to speak in uh, the word there is, in the Greek is the word we get dialects, it's actual languages for tongues, and at the sound, this multitude came together and they were bewildered at this, this sound of these people speaking. Why? Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So I just point that out that right at the beginning, God has something way bigger in mind than just a little we for no more mentality going on in Jerusalem. He is looking at the advancement of this word and the gospel uh, going to these ends of the earth. And in you read back later in verse 9 and 10, it lists all the different uh, people groups and ethnicities that are there. And what I want you to keep in mind here is that the Christian church, the church that Jesus establishes, is a multicultural church. You know, guys, come on. That should have gotten a bigger amen. That, that's weak. It's not just a white church. It's not a black church. It's not a brown church. You know what? It's a church marked by one color, and that's red, of people who were redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is, thank you. Oh, that's much better. Now, now, you, just, now you just gave me an extra 10 minutes. Listen, listen. Racism is an evil from the pit of hell, and it has absolutely no room, zero room, in God's house, and God's church. I don't care if it's in humor or jokes or condensation or, you know, whatever the remarks are that, that, that God's church, and if you remember, 
something in the book of Revelation, it seems like I remember around chapter 5, that in this heaven will be a multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, nation worshiping the Lamb. And if you're not comfortable with people of different pigmentation around you, that's color for, okay, some of you are not sure. You know what? You're going to be real uncomfortable in heaven. And you see, God's answer to racism and bigotry isn't through, you know, some of the, the social engineering that we do in our culture. I guess a lot of that is, that is necessary. I get that. But, the, but you can change the outward behavior, but if you don't change the heart, right? Jesus changes the heart. When you look at the New Testament church, what do you have? You have people worshiping together that outside of Jesus, they'd be killing each other. They hated each other. Look around this group. I mean, we could use a little more color. I'll just be honest with you. All right, thank you. But you know what? We're, we're a fairly diverse group. It wasn't Martin Luther King said that 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour of the week? I think that's changed, but it still needs to change a lot. I want you to see that this was the gospel. This isn't social engineering. This isn't us trying to uh, culture shame people and that. I want you to see that God's intent of building his church wasn't limited to one ethnicity, one race, but was to an entire globe that God had created and that God was redeeming. That's really important. And as you advance, you go to chapter 8 of, uh, and see this diversity. When you go to chapter 8, you see the gospel come, that Philip was led to preach the gospel in Samaria. And if you know anything about the history, I mean, the Jews and, I mean, Jews and Samaritans couldn't stand each other. You know about a racial division and, and discord. I mean, that was big time, big time. And yet we see the gospel, we see what is called, you see the Pentecostal experience in, in Jerusalem in Acts 2. When you come to Acts 8, you see what is often called the Samaritan Pentecost. And you see the gospel and the Holy Spirit being poured out upon Samaritans. And again, these were people that, that if the gospel can go to them, then there, there is no limit. Then you go to chapter 10, and then you see Peter ministering to a Roman soldier by the name of Cornelius, a Gentile, and the Holy Spirit coming upon his household. And Peter says in Acts 10, verse 34, Peter said, I now realize. Now, if he says, I now realize, or he says, I understand that God shows no partiality. In other words, before, remember he had to have a vision about all those foods he wasn't supposed to eat? He was a good Jew. He didn't, you know, he obeyed the dietary laws, strictly the customs and all. But God said, don't you dare call that which I've called clean, don't you call it unclean. That was God doing that. God had to change his heart and his mind, and we see the gospel going into Samaria, the Gentiles, and we see Paul in the advancement of the missionary trips. I mean, Paul's up there with pagans and people that have no connection to anything, you know, of of the, the, the Jewish faith, you know, there's no reference point, and yet we see God building his church way beyond the walls and, and uh, even in extending into Europe. So not only do you have an a ethnic diversity that Jesus is establishing by his spirit that's real and genuine, but you also see a gender diversity in the book of Acts. You see a very prominent role of women in the book of Acts. Now, don't confuse the elevated position of women in Christ with uh, authority roles within the local church. I just want you to see that there was a very prominent role that women had in the book of Acts, in case you forget. Right at the very beginning, in Acts chapter 1, we have a very prominent woman in the upper room, and her name is who? Oh, you cheated. You looked at the screen. It was Mary, the, the uh, mother of Jesus. And what is she doing? She's engaged with this 120 in prayer and the church is, she's there. Um, it doesn't really say exactly, but she's there and she, the church is conducting its first order of business. Remember, they had to decide about replacing uh, Judas uh, and uh, she's participating in the work of the church, serving among her fellow believers. 
When you come to Acts chapter 9, you see a woman by the name of Tabitha or a Greek named Dorcas, uh, same person. She's a disciple, and she's singled out because of her generosity and her kindness to fellow believers. She more than likely was a woman of, of financial means, and she was assisting poor widows, and she made uh, tunics and clothing and different things for them. And if you remember, she got sick and ill and died, and it was Tabitha or Dorcas, same person, that the apostle Peter laid hands upon her, and she was raised from the dead, a very prominent woman. Another woman in Acts chapter 12, another Mary, she's the mother of John Mark. We see John Mark later. He's a nephew of Barnabas. He's a companion uh, for a short time with Paul. And she had a house which was somewhat uncommon for a woman to own a house, and apparently it was big enough that the early church began to meet in her home, and she was uh, a close friend of, of Peter. And John Mark actually became a companion of Peter. So when you read the gospel according to Mark, Mark wasn't a disciple. He wasn't there. But you know, when you read the gospel of Mark, just think you're reading basically the recordings and dictation of Peter, the gospel of Mark. And so you see Mary, the mother of John Mark. You see a woman in Acts 16 by the name of Lydia. She's Lydia and living in an area called Thyatira. And when we pick her up in Acts 16, we see her with a group of individuals outside the city of Philippi, Philippians, not the Philippines, Philippi, right? And she's leading a prayer meeting by the river with this group of people when she encounters Paul. And the Bible says that God opened her heart to receive the gospel. She became a believer in Christ and she apparently was a woman who had some money because she had a big home that she was able to keep and Paul and his companions to stay at. She, the Bible says that she was a businesswoman, a woman who uh, traded in purple cloth, which, again, was a, was a very prosperous trade. So here she was a businesswoman. She was a leader of some, what, some sort, uh, and she was certainly played a very prominent role in the ministry of Paul. Remember Acts 18? You see Priscilla and Aquila or Aquila and Priscilla, uh, but oftentimes it's Priscilla, the woman, uh, and Aquila, and they ran a small business. They were tent makers, and they made contact with Paul, a fellow tradesman, fellow tent maker, and they became uh, Christians and began to be associated with Paul in his ministry. And if you remember, there was this uh, man who came into their midst from Ephesus, and they met a very educated uh, Alexandrian Jew, the Bible says. That means he was a Greek Jew, very highly educated, probably a person of some uh, wealth, of, so to speak. And uh, the Bible, and his name was Apollos. And it says that God used Priscilla and Aquila to explain the gospel more fully to him. All he knew was the gospel or the word of John the Baptist. He was a follower of John the Baptist. And God used this couple. And this is what's interesting, don't build a church out of it, just an observation, all right, is in most cases you see, and this is unusual, you see Priscilla's name listed before her husband, which might hint that she was more of the lead instructor in that disciple. She was doing it alongside with her husband. Again, we're not talking about positions, uh, wasn't an elder or a pastor, didn't want an official office. You know what? She was just using the gifts that God had given her and anointed her with to teach and disciple along with her husband, this man by the name of Apollos. Do you see the diversity? Do you see how God is, has put together this mosaic only he could do, called the kingdom of God, and the kind of church that crosses every ethnic and social background where everyone has equal access and standing before Christ. Paul would later write that verse that we know well in Galatians 3.28, where he says that there is what? Neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that our roles and our distinctions are obliterated. It's just saying that we all have equal standing in the gospel, and there are not these false divisions uh, that we have grown accustomed to. Thirdly, the book of Acts shows a church that is persecuted because of its 
faithfulness to Christ. Persecuted. Where is Paul writing? Is he, I mean, where is Paul at the end of chapter of the book of Acts? He's in jail. He's in jail in Rome. Why is he there? Because of phony charges and accusations and uh, what he was doing. In, uh, and I, don't, I won't have these, but it, there's, uh, in Acts 14, 19, it's one place that says they stoned Paul and they dragged him outside the city of Lystra and left him for dead. Later in Acts 16, 22, when he was in the uh, jail in Philippi, it says that the magistrates uh, and the crowd gave orders to beat Paul and Silas with rods. Listen, these guys suffered because of the gospel. They were persecuted because of the gospel. There were there was opposition because of their faithfulness to Christ. Paul elaborated about this in 2 Corinthians 11, and it's worth reading. It's ver- worth remembering because it's so personal in what he writes. Look at what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 22. He says, are they Hebrews? And he's talking about the, those who are opposing the gospel. He said, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Look at this, verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And that does not mean any modern connotations, okay? Uh, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart, if that wasn't bad enough, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Wow. And as serious as that is, and Jesus even said, don't be shocked when they come after you because they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. But Paul reminds us that part of this opposition and this persecution, yeah, we know, we know the outside, but he gives a sober warning back in chapter 20 when he was saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus before he left, and he also said there's also going to be persecution and opposition, not just from outsiders, but from where? Inside, inside the church. Look at what he says to these elders. His last words, he's, he's giving them a warning. He says, pay, Acts 20, verse 28, he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, elders, little reminder, only the Holy Spirit makes leaders, to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, look at the way he describes these people, fierce wolves will come in among you. Not sparing, not sparing the flock. And look at the language. And from among your own selves. I always kind of imagine when he was talking to them, was he looking, and maybe God was showing him which ones. He said, even from among your own selves. Who's he talking to? He's talking to fellow elders in the church. And he says, even some of you that have the cloak of eldership, he says, even some of you are going to rise up, and he says, and speak twisted things, for what purpose? To draw away the disciples after them. That's a pretty sober warning. Jesus said in Matthew seven fifteen, he said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. There is a disguising, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Paul warns and reminds us in the book of Acts that persecution comes for faithfulness in Christ. Fourthly, the book of Acts shows a church that prioritizes the teaching or the ministry of the Word of God, Scripture. What's Paul doing in verse 23 of Acts 28? Look at it. 
I mean, it says that he's trying to convince them, those who are coming into his house and probably the guards, he's trying to convince them about Jesus. That's what he's doing. He didn't just say, you know what? I've done enough. Beatings, trials, cold, I'm just going to, you know what? I've earned this retirement. I've earned this place. I'm just going to chill. I'm going to quit making trouble for myself. I'm just going to, no, he is continuing. He can't stop. I mean, he's like the ever-ready battery. I mean, he is not going to give up. He is tenacious in the advancement of what God has called him to do. He's trying to convince them. There he is under house arrest. Acts 20, verse 27, to those uh, elders at Ephesus, one more thought of that. He says, I did not shrink. I wasn't shy from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He spent three years in Ephesus teaching and discipling and laboring in the Word of God. The, the Word of God, the, the prioritizing of the Word of God, the Scripture in the church, you see all through the book of Acts. A few sampling, Acts 6-7, the Word of God continued to increase, and notice what happened. As the Word of God increased, what else happened? The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Chapter 12, 24, the Word of God increased and multiplied. The growth and the Word of God being taught went hand in hand in parallel form. Acts 19, 20, the Word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You know, churches, we, get, we fall into all these little gimmicks. And I, and I recognize that, you know, methods oftentimes are... Uh, you know, those things change from generation to generation. Uh, sometimes I, I have some old magazines that go back to the 80s or 70s, and sometimes I look back at the ads, and you know what I see in some of those ads in some very prominent Christian magazines? Some of them aren't even published today, but I see full-page ads for cassette tape ministries where you can order cassette tapes in bulk and tape duplicators some of you don't even know what that is. It's a little plastic thing, and if you got it stuck, you took a pencil and, you know, did. I'm not looking to resurrect that ministry. <laughs> That's gone. That's history. Uh, salty. Some of you don't even know who that is. He's history, all right? I know, I know. All right. I knew I was in trouble. I pick on salty. Some of you are bewildered, and I better move on. Do you remember in you remember in Acts chapter six? Acts chapter six was a real pivotal situation. The church was growing so exponentially that it didn't take long before a conflict occurred. Okay, if you're looking for a church that doesn't have conflict, move on. All right, because I mean you're never going to find it. All right, it's just part of it. You get a bunch of sinners together who are primarily selfish, and guess what? You're going to have conflict, all right? We're, we're trying, right? We're, we're, we're in the process, but that's just part of it. And the conflict wasn't bad. It was actually a good thing. And what was happening in Acts chapter 6 is you had these, not, these Greek widows, these uh, kind of a, a Jewish widows that had a Greek ethnicity to them, and they were complaining because the church was involved in a distribution of food to the poor, and these Greek Jewish widows were complaining that they weren't getting their daily allotment of food that the uh, church was distributing, and they were complaining, and the word came to the apostles. And the apostles uh, essentially said, and I'll pick it up in verse 2, I'm not sure what's on the screen, uh, that, they, that they brought together a number of the disciples, and if you look at the ones they brought together, they were all had Greek names because they, they knew who was, uh, they needed to take care of. And they said this. This is what the apostles said in Acts 6, and it just is illustrative of the priority of the Word of God. They said, as apostles, being stewards of the calling they have, they said it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Now, don't misread that. They were saying that somehow that was beneath them to do that. They weren't saying that at all. They were recognizing 
that to be good stewards at what they were called to do, they needed to give priority to the Word of God and to prayer. That's what their job was. Nobody could do what they were doing, okay? And so what did they commission? They told them, look, go out and pick out among you uh, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and essentially, look, tell them to take care of this. They distributed the responsibility, and they told them to Make sure that the needs of these widows were being taken care of. What's the point? Is that the apostles, the leaders, recognize that our priority was the Word of God. And if they became just a social arm, a social, social agency, the church would die. You see, we have uh, had for years a benevolence food ministry. But we are a church that has a food ministry. We're not a food ministry that has a church. There's a big difference. The ministry of benevolence and helping the need come out of our role as the body of Christ, okay? And it comes as, as an opportunity for sharing the gospel. That's what happened. And if you look at verse 6 and 7, because of being led to have wisdom in this, it says in verse 7 that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Why? Because they prioritized, they kept the main thing, the main thing of what they were called to do. You get that? You with me? All right. Fifthly, the book of Acts shows a church that demonstrates servant leadership. Servant leadership. The Romans ruled with pomp and authority. They were big and kind of like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they were big in image. They were big in ceremony. And so the Romans, and remember that Israel at this time is under Roman control, and when they would parade and march in the streets and they were just showing anybody that would dare to challenge their authority, there was great pomp and ceremony of the strength of Rome and their authority and the prestige and the influence and the position and power. That was one of the reasons the Jewish leaders were so angry and jealous because they saw their influence and power being diminished and people weren't listening to them and they were following people like these disciples. And so servants, on the other end, servants are the opposite. On the opposite end of the social order, they were there to serve others, to benefit others. And so, look, let's be honest, we'd all rather be rulers than servants, right? Let's don't be so spirit. We like that. That's our nature, right? But Jesus counteracts our nature, doesn't he? He's always, his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. You want to be great? You do what? You become the least right? You want to become great? You want to become somebody, a high authority? You become a servant. Isn't that what Jesus himself modeled? Jesus himself modeled that. He said, if anyone wants to be first, Mark 9, 34, he must be the very last and the servant of all. And you know why that's so important to distinguish? Because of the celebrity culture that is so much a part of the American church. We have turned servants into celebrities, and that shouldn't be. When you think about those disciples, and you think about their qualifications, I mean, it's astounding to think that anyone would build a global corporation, a global movement off these guys. Think about it. I mean, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, they were fishermen. And that's no slight against fishermen. They probably had some small business. But, you know, to, to lead a, a, a worldwide enterprise, they probably, that probably wasn't really the preparation uh, training. Matthew, what did he do? He was a tax collector. Everybody hated tax collectors. And he got saved and came to Christ. Uh, Bartholomew and, or Nathaniel and Thomas, uh, we're not really sure. We assume maybe they were fishermen too. Uh, we don't know about Philip, uh, James, and Simon the Zealot, and Thaddeus. They were other disciples you don't hear a lot about. <clears throat> We don't know about their background. Uh, we do know about, uh, we don't know his background, but we know that Judas must have had some uh, business savvy. Why? Because they put him in charge of the money, the treasury. I love how John, when he's writing about Judas, kind of puts in parentheses, and he was a thief from the beginning. I mean, <laughs> I mean, John loved Jesus, but he's like, he still, this still bugs me, you know? I mean, he just kind of puts that in parentheses. Um, 
But you know what made the difference? And this is in, in Acts 4.13. When they were hauled before the magistrates, the Bible says in Acts 4.13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized what? They had been with Jesus. What makes the difference in our lives? Being with Jesus. Jesus transforms us into people that couldn't find our way out of a paper bag to turning us into people who are at front and center of God's global ministry and plan around the world. Isn't that an amazing thing? And everyone here is in on it if you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus doesn't call the qualified, but qualifies the called. Number six, the book of Acts shows a church that grows, prospers, while surrounded by a pagan culture. Our men's Bible study studying about, uh, um, is it Jeremiah that you're, or Daniel that you guys are, or just a little bit of everybody about uh, the church and growth in, in Babylon? Uh, huh? Yeah, and how that God, uh, the ministry didn't die there. Erwin Lutzer study on Tuesday, men, great study that has started a few weeks back. But what we see is the church, uh, they did not have the sympathies politically of Rome, uh, they were living, and I say pagan, not just in a religious sense, but just in a cultural sense. I mean, they, they, these were idolatrous people. They, they were, it was an immoral culture. There was, it was antithetical to everything that uh, these guys uh, came into the truth of and the Word of God. But yet, even though the culture was hostile and set against the believers, arresting them, killing them, and seeking to do them harm, lying, and, and you name it. Yet, what do we see here? We see the church, God's people, growing. I'll give you an example. It says, it starts out in Acts chapter 2. It says that as a result of this great outpouring, 3,000 people or more added to the church. It says, verse 46 of Acts 2, and day by day attending the temple together. They were still Jews attending the temple breaking bread in the homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. Verse 47, praising God. And what does it say? Having favor with all the people. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Things are good. Good times are rolling. Well, doesn't last long. You go over two more chapters, chapter 4. And chapter 4 starts out and says that as they were speaking to the people, Peter and John, I believe, that the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And verse 2 says, greatly annoyed... Because they were doing what? They were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, what did the disciples do? They didn't go out and start a, a, a letter-writing campaign. They didn't start marching and chaining themselves to the, to the, the Roman um, you know, idols and doing a lot of things. You know what they did? Uh, I love it. Acts 4, as, or Acts 4 when uh, Peter and John, and they, they were released from jail the church began to pray, Acts 4, and in verse 29, they prayed and said, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. And what did they say? Kill them. Smite them. They started quoting all those psalms about God killing and smash. No. What did they pray? They, say, they said, grant to your servants, what? That we continue to speak your word with all. They didn't say, Lord, get us out of this situation. We're going to start confessing this, what we're our way out of this right now. Come on, guys. No. They said, Lord. In fact, if you read back verse 24, they prayed, Sovereign Lord, recognizing that God's in control. And they said, Give us boldness to continue to speak your word. How do we navigate in a pagan culture? Being bold for Christ, being bold, full of his Holy Spirit. But there's also another aspect of navigating ourselves like the early church, that they were their visible love for each other. Jesus said, how will you know, how will all people know that you're my disciples? By your love for one another. By your love for one another. And the last principle we see that the book of Acts shows a church, and this could easily have been one, it's focused on Jesus Christ as our only hope. All through the book of Acts, as we've walked through this, you see time and time again, 
The message is Jesus crucified, Jesus resurrected, the cross, resurrection. Whether Paul was speaking to his fellow Jews in the synagogue, he pointed them to Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. In fact, as soon as he started talking about the resurrection, that seemed to really make people go crazy. Even when he was in Athens, Athens, remember in Greece, uh, they were philosophers. They were gathered at, I think King James has Mars Hill, the Oropagus. It was a gathering place where they sat daily and heard all different philosophies and different things. It was kind of the Dr. Phil and Oprah Winfrey show of its day, you know. And uh, they just kind of heard whoever was the latest thing and hearing this and hearing that. And Paul took advantage while he was waiting for his companions. He began to do a tour, and that's when he said, I was sick to my stomach at the idolatry. But I see that you're very religious, remember? And he said, that you even have, you're so religious, you want to make sure you don't offend anybody. They want to be culturally, you know, correct. You have, a, you have an altar to the unknown God, just in case you missed anybody. He said, this is, your, uh, this is going to be a great day, because that unknown God, I am going to tell you who that unknown God is. And he began to tell them about Christ. And the way he told them about Jesus was different earlier in Acts 17 when he was in the synagogue. Synagogues, he could open up the Old Testament, our, you know, language, and reason to them with the Scriptures. You know where he began when he began to talk to these pagan Greeks? He began to talk about God as creator. And he moved his way down. And look at what happened when he got down to verse 23. No, I'm sorry. Um, where am I at? Acts 17, yeah, 31. I'm sorry. Do I have that? Acts 17, 31. Then he says, he calls them, he said, God calls everyone to repent. Verse 31, he says, because God has fixed a day. Say, fixed a day. You can't change it. Can't change it. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Look at this. By a man. We know who that man is, don't we? Whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by what? Raising him from the dead. And if you read on, it says when he mentioned about raising him from the dead, they were just like, oh my goodness, stop there. They just couldn't stand anymore. What I want you to see is Paul, no matter where he was at, his method, his approach might have changed, but the content of his message was always Jesus crucified, resurrected, coming again. He was always consistent in that. The disciples, the followers of Jesus, didn't matter where they were at. And one thing they were all consistent upon is what they would say in Acts 4.12, very clearly, that there's only one way that God has made it whereby where we can be saved, that there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name. There's no plan B. There's no other name. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What do we see throughout Acts? We see a church being built by Jesus. The gospel is expanding, not by human strength, not by human cleverness. I remember years ago, uh, a pastor was talking about... uh, uh, and talking to another pastor about some, some, some uh, books that he ought to read for church growth. And the guy started rattling off all these uh, business books and corporate, you know, uh, help books and different things. And I thought, you know, how about read Ephesians? How about read uh, the book of Acts? That's radical, isn't it? How about read, you know, God somehow was able to do it. Uh, without some, uh, you know, some of the, now can we learn things from Egypt? Yeah, I, I get all that. But you know what? When the church begins to try to come up and build a better cart to carry the ark on, we will always fail. We will always fail. There's going to be demonic forces, worldly powers, authorities, governmental intrusions, opposition, cultural barriers, intense suffering, intense persecution, uh, bloody uh, beatings, internal disunity, shipwrecks, snakes. Hello? There's always going to be stuff coming against his church. But Jesus gave us the promise, upon this rock, I will build my church. What did he say? I will build. And it's his church. And I love when, and, and there's so much of this, and I just, I just give you a three. Uh, I was thinking about the church in China, doing some reading on that this week. 
I love something the Chinese uh, Christians are attributed to saying. said, Chinese Christians are like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper we go. Because when you think about the church in China, look at this, look at this quick statistic. In 1941, there was only 4 million Protestant believers in mainland China. Today, there's over 67 million, and that's probably an old number and growing. How about Vietnam? In the past 15, 20 years, the church in Vietnam has grown 600% in Vietnam. I love on the continent of Africa, they estimate by the year 2025, on the continent of Africa, there will be 600 million Christians in Africa. It's an amazing thing. What, God, what is God doing? Well, the book of Acts ends in 28. But guess what? We're living chapter 29 right now. We're part of chapter 29. It is not finished. And you know when it will be finished? Jesus said it will be finished. Matthew 24, Scripture's on the screen. Matthew 24, 14. I like the way the New Living Translation says it. Jesus said, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and what? And then, and then the end will come. Who knows? There may be some people that on January 12th in Plant City, I don't know. You don't either. There might be some people that are part of those final in-gathering of souls that God saves. I want to be a part of that, don't you? I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of it. I don't have to wait till January 12th. I want to be a part of it today. 